right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, guys, I am, I'm pumped about this podcast. I'm not going to lie. I was hoping to get two parts out of, uh, out of Brad Fax and went down to Palm Beach, recorded with him this past week. You got to settle for an hour and a half of just tremendous golf talk and the assumption that he's going to come back on. Cause I got about, I had about five pages of notes. I got through less than two of them. I think, I mean, we left, I didn't even talk about his hair. We didn't even get to that. Uh, there's a ton in this interview. Uh, it's probably gonna be our last of the week. We we're on the road. We are shooting Taurus Sauce Season 5, uh, but I promise it's going to be worth your worth your while. Uh, before we do get going, i got to tell you guys, I know I mentioned a couple weeks ago about the Apex Smoke, the irons from Callaway. We know the Apex irons have been a massive hit this year. They are the number one selling forged players distance iron in 2019. I can't even keep track of all the crazy good irons that Callaway has. Uh, they're now available in this smoking hot smoke black package. Uh, They they feature a stunning smoke PVD finish and blacked out true temper elevate shaft and black grip for a murdered out look from top to bottom. And good news for the lefties out there, you can get the Apex Smoke in standard Apex, Apex Pro, and a combo set in both right and left handed. So uh, if you want an iron that looks as good as it performs, check out the Apex Smoke today. For more photos, details, and specs, CallawayGolf.com. I know Tron is waiting for his set. Uh, it should be coming here shortly, but I think uh, all there is to say is smoke apex every day. <laughs> That's it. Damn it. I do like an hour, a minute of the read and you just crush it. The part that's not even in the read, but, uh, uh, last note before we get going here, that is of course the voice of DJ Pi. Uh, you got to tell me about Earl active. You, you broke down a little bit when we were on the road trip because you, you lost your job kit. <laughs> broke down is a, is a you strong, crying on the broke down the is a strong term. I did not sleep as well. I lost, I left my dock kit behind uh, at one of the hotels. What is Ru- Solly was rushing me out of the hotel. Herbal Active is a uh, water-based CBD that uh, all of us... How do you us... spell Herbal Active? I thought you were going to say, how do you spell CBD? Like, it's just <laughs> CBD. Uh, U-R-B-A-L, like urban with an L. Active with no E, A-C-T-I-V. Uh, and it's one of those things I think all of us were... I think we've mentioned this on the pod before, but all of us were very skeptical of uh, getting in with a CBD company. And... The difference it's made in how I sleep and how my body feels. It's like I was missing my dop kit for three days. I wasn't taking it before bed. I wasn't taking it when I wake up. And all of a sudden, I'm like, God, that's right. I forgot. I feel like shit every day when I wake up. He's like rubbing your face. I feel like <laughs> shit. I don't sound like that, first yeah, you of all. Do. Uh, but no, it's great. Uh, I, I take it after after workouts. You know, it's, it's a good post-surfing uh, kind of thing to do. I take it before I go to bed. I sleep like a baby. You have maybe some weird dreams. but I, I have <laughs> been having some very lucid dreams. But it's kind I, of fun. Uh, it's very fun. Yeah. And so that's just one added perch. They throw that in for free. Uh, but no, it's uh, herbalactive.com. If you're looking to get involved, NLU20, I believe. NLU20. The, uh, the promo code. Yeah. The reviews are, are rave. I think our parents are starting to get involved with this stuff. Everyone's been hitting us up. U R B A L A C T I V dot com. Use promo code NLU20. My dad texted me the other day. He's like, hey, what's that pot that you take every day? I'm like, well, <laughs> that's actually, not what it is. Actually, dad, there's 0% THC in this. There's no THC. It's not that kind of a thing. Uh, it is a hemp extract. Just trust get involved. Just get involved. Us. Yeah. Cool. All right, without any further delay, here's our podcast episode with Brad Faxon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast in uh, in the Casa de Faxon. I got I got to say Brad, this is uh, the, today was one of the coolest coolest things I've ever got to do. Watching you and Rory 
do a little putting practice. You, you said that you don't share a lot of that info with outside people. I don't. And I, I would leave it up to, you know, whoever the individual is that I'm, I'm with. And look, I feel like I'm like the luckiest guy in the world to have a guy like Rory McIlroy, you know, call and lightning strikes the immediately that same week we, we got together and talked about putting, but that was Bay Hill last year, at Bay Hill last year, right. Where he won by four shots and, uh, you know, made the, the putt on the last hole, that meaningless putt that everybody makes when they don't need to make it, that gives <laughs> it even more drama. But it's, it's been fantastic to be able to spend, spend time with Rory. And one of the things that I always believed that it's not up for, to me to share information on, you know, Twitter or Instagram and, and post it because you're trying to help the individual, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if he decides to talk about it or put it out there, that's his or her choice. And I, I had a lot of instructors, you know, as a, as a player. I was told to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I know we'll get there at some point because it's inevitable. But Jim McLean made a great point to me. McLean was one of the top teachers in the, you know, the, the 1990s, taught Tom Kite and Peter Jacobson and many others. But, but he said to me, listen, if you start sharing what you're doing with friends or with maybe a stranger and then they don't like what you're doing and then they start questioning what you're doing, it might raise doubt. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. And look, that was 25, 30 years ago when there wasn't social media. And and now there's ways to make social media an opportunity. But I also get a kick out of some of the guys that go back and answer every every reply from everybody. Right. Well, so when you say raises doubt, do you mean like raises doubt about them internally or no, raises no, doubt I about mean, your instruction? About, yeah, maybe okay. what you are doing. Like if you if you have a lesson from... You know, if I had a lesson from Jim McLean, let's say back then, and he was telling me, you know, the key to what you're trying to do, me was, and I'm making something up here, is to yeah. move into my right side immediately off my swing. Say I was uh, having dinner with a guy that was more of a stay centered, stack and tilt sort of guy, and he would go, well, why are you doing that? Most of the good players. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, you might have felt great about a thought or a feel that you had, and now you have some guy questioning it. And, and I, you know, the, the great saying that, I don't know if it came from Harvey Penick was, go to dinner with good putters. Hmm. I like that. You know, mm-hmm. so if, if you're constantly talking about something so that you might get more feedback, I think that feedback can blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot I want to ask you about as to what made you a great putter. But before we do any of that, I want to want to kind of understand you've spent a career making putts and learning how to be a good putter. How easy is that to translate to being an instructor, right? Because your feels are your feels. How do you, you know, translate that to someone else? I think that's one of the best questions I've been asked because people inevitably ask me or, or tell me you're just lucky you were born a good putter, right? Which ticks me off because I spent a lot of time practicing. I spent a lot of time helping people read greens when I was a kid as a caddy. And I, I've been, I'm learning a lot as how to, to be a better instructor. And I think it's, there's no way you can correlate how good you are at a skill and how you are as an instructor. If you, you, you might look at the best players in the world, or if you said Jack and Tiger, that doesn't mean because they are great players that they're great instructors, that they'll have the ability to say, this is what I felt when I played my best golf. But how do you communicate that to somebody that, that's struggling in, in a certain part of the game? So I get angry when I hear somebody comment like, who's Brandel Chambly think he is? What does he think he's an expert? You know, when they don't like something that he says. 
you know, he only won one tournament. I'm going, well, what does that have to do with whether he's an expert or not? Right. He, he studied this game maybe more than anybody alive right now, and that's going to piss people off listening to me say that. And I'm a big Brandle fan because he's not afraid to go out on a limb to say something. Look, David Ledbetter was the best instructor in the world. He never won a tournament. Rich right. Harmon won one tournament, maybe a rained out tournament. Sean Foley never won a tournament. So why does that mean you'd have to win to be great at being an instructor? So I think I mentioned to you on the putting green today when we, we were at the Bears Club, the Rory, that, look, I'm still learning on a lot of the, the technical part of what people do when they hit a putt. I mean, I know what I did. I know what it feels like to hit a good putt or feels like to have a nice routine. And I certainly have my opinions, but if some guy does something different than me, but makes a lot of putts, I'm not going to change him. So yeah, I think you can relate it. And I think a guy like Rory McIlroy, who's as talented as a player that's ever played the game, he can pick up on things really quickly. And you can tell really quickly if he doesn't like something. And I think you saw it today um, when we were watching him hit these putts on the Bears green greens there, which were n- not even close to what they normally are like. You could see the bounce them here early in the, you know, we're starting golf season down here really in Florida. Mm-hmm. The amount of putts he just made was incredible, wasn't right. it? Right. Well, that was not, that wasn't an, an intense putting session. That was barely even a tune-up if you ask me. No, but do you think, <laughs> and here's... Because of how dialed in he, he was, he, well, he, Yeah, he's ready. Um, but wouldn't you think that when he walked away from, what did we spend, a half an hour, 45 minutes? Mm-hmm, something like that. He feels better about himself when he left there. Mm-hmm. That's what I would get the feeling. And and that was not a, a detailed session. I've been a lot more, you know, we've had hours where we spent there working on one certain part of mechanics. But, I mean, he, he made a, a bunch of putts there from 20 feet. He, play, he putted right to lefters, left to righters. He hits them in at different speeds. Then we worked on the four-footers, the three-footers that he's going to have to make if he's going to finish off a a tough two-putt or make it after he stuffed it in there close. And, you know, you challenge him a little bit. you got to make four of these in a row. And, you know, he didn't do it the first time, and it gets him working. But it's it's doing stuff that's going to prepare him to play. What was it? I mean, what was his – have you seen his mindset on putting evolve since the time you've been been working with him? So when I had – met him. He had spent the last couple of years with Phil Kenyon, who's one of the greatest putting instructors in the world. And Kenyon has taught Tommy Fleetwood. And I mean, go through the list of guys, Justin Rose, Gary Woodland, who won the US Open this year. He's got a lot more experience than I do. And I think how you teach someone, how you communicate to some player depends really on the player and how much information they want, need, and can handle at once. And I, I really have never asked Rory what it what, what did you work on specifically with with Phil, but I'm sure the stuff that he had worked on kind of got into his stroke at at some point. But um, he he's gotten much more comfortable right now that um, it's just it seems to be right now a little bit more reminders, a little bit more games for him. And I mean, for the best players in the world, it's can you continually do the same seemingly boring things over and over and over again and add some excitement to it. Yeah. Well, a couple of things that I took out of today. One is something he said about his work. Michael Bannon was there as well and working on their full swing, but he doesn't have, you know, you out there or Michael out there during tournament weeks. He's like, I'm once I get to tournament week, I, I have my swing and I have got to kind of do it from there. And the second thing was kind of, well, something you said there near the end, which was, 
you know, he, he lipped a putt. I was a 15 footer, 20 footer, and he lipped it on the, on the low end. And you said something about the attitude you have towards putting that day decides your takeaway from that. Either, hey, I hit a great putt, it didn't go in, or, oh, I can't believe I can't buy a bucket there. Right. And I think every player, no matter what their handicap or level is, when you hit a 15-foot putt and it's going right at it and then at the last minute it turns, hits the edge, and spins out, oh, you know, you, yeah, you can grit your teeth, upset. you can, you know, cuss, or you can smile and you can go, oh, that was a great putt. And... I call that the acceptance part of that. And a lot of the stuff I've learned is from, from Bob Rotella, the sports psychologist who worked with so many great players over his career. But if you constantly have a putt that's close and they're not going in and, and you get more angry and more upset, boy, you're, you're going to be in for a long career. Because if you think about the percentage of those putts you're going to make over your lifetime, you know, you're not like a free throw shooter. Right. right? I mean, you have to act like one. Yeah, and it's it's amazing how great of a putt you can hit from eight feet and have it not go in. You exactly. Know, it's not, it's and, not like shooting a free throw. And if you want to try and explain these things all the time and have an answer that's supposed to be logically, you're swimming upstream, aren't you? you, you you're going to lose that battle. And I think a lot of people now, and, and technology is probably one of the things that's hurt a lot of players in, in a way they wouldn't suspect that uh, you can measure everything now. Every single thing that you do, you can measure. And sometimes you just can't explain why an eight-footer didn't go in. And, and, you know, you might say, well, the face was too open. The closure rate was too quick. You know, you, um, you had too much left wrist flexion. You can use all the big words, but sometimes it's just golf. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's just an answer that people don't want to hear at times. But if you can be more patient with that, I think you're going to like the game a little bit more. And, and one of the things Michael Bannon, who's Rory's only instructor, really told me early on when I got the phone call from Rory, and you need to ask me about that because that's a, that's a great story. <laughs> Doing my job. Yeah, so you so, work in media. This no, is too I easy. Know, it is, and it's, <laughs> it's awkward sometimes. But, but uh, I called him because I said, Michael, you've been with Rory your whole life. I, I know what you've seen the last few years of the Greens, but how do you work well? What's the best way to communicate to him? And he told me, you know, with Rory, they like to spend the time together like they just have uh, these last few days here down in Florida. And then he, as he gets ready to go play in the Skins game and a couple more uh, Asian events mm-hmm. or European tour events or World Golf Championships, he's he said, Michael said, Rory works best if we give have a couple thoughts to play with or on the range. And I'll let Rory decide which one he's going to like um, on the course. And instead of being on on the driving range late Wednesday night before a tournament, trying to figure out what's right. You know, Rory's got that. He's figured it out. And he, you know, when he goes to play his practice rounds, he might have one or two fields, but by the time he, he lets it fly, uh, that thing's pretty simplified. Yeah. He, I think he sets his, like his variance levels. Right. And he's like, as long as I'm within this variance level, some things are going to work out. Some things aren't, but like, as long as things are within these two lines, I can play golf. And it's we've done it with the putting pretty well. I mean, he's done it more than anything. I mean, the, the, the instructor gets way too much credit and way too much blame when really the instructor can, I don't know, in Sean O'Flaherty, who's one of the greatest men in this game too, Rory's agent, he said, look, uh, it's already proven that the instructor doesn't really help the player that much to get that much better. He can only get him to his potential where he can really get a lot, hurt him a lot, harm him a lot. Yeah. 
you're trying to you're trying to ignite something within them, right? It's all yeah. in there. It's yeah. like trying to activate it, pretty much. And, and you heard Rory explain a little bit, like even that simple chip shot. And I started with that video of that chip shot that he saw. It hit. There's so much feel in there and visualization that what he sees, we'll never know the way he sees it. He can explain it to us, but when you're great at something, it's hard to use words in the English language that you can the you putt know, the putt he hit today he's like I he's explaining to us he says look if you told me to hit a 30 foot putt I couldn't do it but look at that that pin right there and he pointed to a hole a cut maybe 30, it was 45 feet away yeah maybe I'd 40. 45 feet he's, he's, he's like I can hit it right to this watch boom hits the putt and it could not have been any more pin high it could not have been more pin high and, and again he hadn't hit a, a 45 or 50 footer he'd only hit 12 footers to a different right. hole uh, that was an uphill putt where, with a, a, a probably a stint meter reading of less than 10. And up that hill, it was probably a six on that stint meter. Mm-hmm. And he got it in one shot. And that's where when a player's on, like he's in that show-off mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, watch this. Watch this. He's like, watch this. And I was I was really, really like hesitant to talk about anything about golf feels with Rory just because that could... <laughs> I don't even want to say advice, but it can come off as advice. But one thing I said about my game this year. I was like, yeah, you know, this year I started hitting putts to make them instead of trying to hit good putts. And he immediately jumped in. He's like, I think the exact same way. I was trying too hard to hit good putts instead of trusting myself as an athlete to make putts. Yeah. Is that the way you thought as a putter? Or still think, I guess I should say. You're still, you still got the putting game. I, I can still putt pretty well. And, and it's interesting, as I got better as a putter, I didn't really practice more, which everybody would think is crazy. Nobody wants to hear that. But I was so confident with it that I knew it was always going to be pretty good. And if I was in the right state of mind, I rarely hit bad putts. You know, I al- almost every putt looked like it had a chance to go in. And people have said that. It looks like every putt you have has a chance to go in. And even now, I love standing over a putt. I mean, yeah. it's, it, and really, I, I wasn't born with that. You know, I had to learn that and learn that the hard way a lot of times and through trial and error. And look, I've missed a lot of important putts in my life. And I really think the how you respond to that is hugely important. This is uh, maybe the most broad question, but you mentioned you you weren't always great putter. You worked at it, but where do you where do you feel like you got the advantage over? Because I don't think anyone off the street can go out and practice putting for ten thousand hours and necessarily be a great putter. There's more that goes into it than just hitting a ton of putts. Right. Uh, you know, I've read that book, uh, and. If, if 10,000 hours was the answer, that everybody that putted 10,000 hours would be great at it. And they aren't, are they? It's It would help to get better and, and hone a skill, but there's way more other things that go into it. So I was lucky. I, I grew up in Rhode Island with a, with a father that was a, a golfer. I, I played other sports like a lot of kids did. And I had a short season, so I never felt like golf was you know, a full-time uh, endeavor back then. I, I got to do a lot of different things with the, I think the skill set you learn from other sports is really helpful in golf, especially, yeah. especially in golf. And then, so I was a caddy and Rhode Island Country Club was an old Donald Ross course with beautiful green sloped back to front. And a lot of those Saturday and Sunday mornings that was due on the greens when we went out early and I would help the players, the, the members read their greens. And I'd always see the, you know, the path that the ball took. And it always blew me away how much a ball would move, especially as it slowed down. And then later on, when I started to play competitively, I would always see that, you know, the action track we used to see on, you know, it was now become a tracer. Mm -hmm. So when I started reading greens, 
and having caddies help me on the tour, I'm like, nobody ever reads enough break. And that was later confirmed in a lot of studies by Dave Pels. And having that image was, is always and still is embedded in my mind when I go on any green. Mm-hmm. I feel like when, maybe it's maybe this is obvious, but allowing more break, whenever I feel very confident that I have the, the ball aimed high enough, I hit such a better speed. So Pels was one of the first instructors really to focus on short game. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an engineer. He called himself a scientist. I don't know if studying golf makes you a scientist or not. But he definitely said that from all the, the studies that he did of amateur golfers is most of them under-read, under-aimed, and then definitely compensated throughout their stroke. And then we started to hear stuff like, and he would have been one of the first guys to say it, that the best putt would have a speed that would go 17 inches by the hole. And... I'm like, okay, I might buy that. You know, you hit a putt from above the hole and it's the ball's always moving slower than when you hit from below the hole. And I'm like, God, every time I hit a putt 17 inches past the hole, Dave, it misses. And he would go, well, you know what I mean? I go, yeah, but I was kind of trying to bust your chops a little. And, and we do, and I like practicing a lot of putts hitting at different speeds. You know, you know, you just said it, you know, the speed you hit when you try and play more break is better for you. I like players to try and hit the most break they can hit and then see what's the limit on how hard you can hit a putt. And if you if you can't feel that in practice, I don't know how you can take it to the to the course and competition. And boy, I, I would I would argue with the these instructors that are saying there's, you know, one speed's the best, where I said, look, I've I played a lot of golf, I've watched a lot of players putt where I've seen them try and die putts in the hole and they make them. I've seen them try and ram putts in the hole and they make them. So don't tell me there's only one speed that works. Right. What? Uh, well, before we get too far here, and if I lose track, you, I, I'm supposed to ask you what uh, <laughs> yeah. your first time meeting or with Rory getting the call. How did that? How did the relationship? No, start? it's a really funny story because you know I told you a little bit of this when we were on the putting green today with him, and when he called me, uh, he got my cell phone maybe from his dad or from a member at Seminole and said, hey, and I was playing a senior tour event out in Newport Beach, the Toshiba Classic at Newport Beach Country Club, which was one of the great events. And I was going to come home on Monday morning because I don't like flying red eyes. And I had booked a, a flight on JetBlue's Mint class. And I don't know if you've flown on that, but it's it's maybe the best domestic first class. And I had booked it early enough in advance because I know they, they gobble those up pretty quickly. And I got it for a great fare. I mean, for a a cross-country, over, not an overnight, but a, a lay-down seat, great food, and a TV screen that's like a big iPad. Mm-hmm. It was 700 bucks. I'm like, you don't get that anymore. So I had it booked. I was excited about, and I had a friend, I think, that he and I were going to go to dinner that night. Actually, it was, I could humble brag. It was Tom Werner, the owner of the Red Sox, who's become a friend, lives at the, on the fifth green at Riviera. So I was going to go have dinner with him, then fly out the next day. And couldn't have been more happy. So I get a text on Saturday while I was on the course. I didn't see it until I was done. And it was from a number I didn't have. And it was McElroy. And he said, hey, I'm going to be at Old Palm on Monday playing an Ernie Els' autism event. Can you meet me at the Bears Club at four o'clock on Monday? And first of all, to get a text from Rory McElroy, I still get excited. I've known him for a year and a half now. And I said, oh, four o'clock on Monday. So I started trying to do the math. I said, I'm leaving at 8 land Fort Lauderdale at four. It's an hour drive. I said, no. So I didn't want to say no. And I'm like, because he, he was going to play Bay Hill that week. And I said, oh, 
the only way I can do that is to take a red eye. So I didn't respond. I said, you know what? Maybe I did respond. I said, yeah, I'll be there. And then I said, oh. So I went back and started looking at all the different flights. And, and there was an American flight nonstop from LAX to Miami. Uh, and I said, red eye, you know, I can go coach and save a little money or I can go first class and spend a lot more money. But I wanted to sleep. I wanted to be ready. So I, I changed uh, the ticket from JetBlue to American. It was 1900 bucks. Oh, no. First class. <laughs> and I'm like, God. So <laughs> I, I got into Miami at like 5 in the morning. The red eyes are tough because yeah, it's, it's such a short flight down. When flying in the East. Yeah, sucks. and then flying to Miami is terrible and driving up the turnpike at rush hour. So I got home, you know, plenty of time, 9 o'clock. Probably took a nap. And then, then I get to meet him at the Bears Club. And uh, when I called my wife, this is the funny part, on uh, Sunday, to tell her, hey, Rory called. He wants me to come uh, spend some time with him. And I said, I'm going to come home Sunday night now, not Monday. He, she goes. I can see where this is going. Well, yeah, that's why it's so good. You must be married. <laughs> so she goes, was that, you mean you're coming home on the red eye? I said, yeah. She goes, well, you didn't want to come home on the red eye. I said, <laughs> Yeah, but Rory McIlroy calls. She goes, what do you like Rory McIlroy more than you like me? And I go, well, at this moment, yes. <laughs> I hadn't even met him yet. So I, I've gotten a lot of grief from that. And I don't know if I've ever told Rory that face-to-face, but I hope he listens to your podcast. <laughs> I think he still tunes in from time to time. Was that a normal, like when you were in the height of your competitive days, did guys come to you on the putting green for tips? Is that is that a normal thing? It started to happen uh, later Later in my career, and, and you know, I was always a guy that liked to hang around with players and their teachers and just talk about swing stuff and listen, whether it was Davis Love or Jeff Sluman, Peter Jacobson. Um, you know, if, if one of those guys were hitting balls, I just liked to listen. I was curious, uh, still am, and I, I thought I, I maybe studied enough, listened to enough people where I could help somebody if they were struggling. And, you know, like I said, my time with Rotella was um, – the value it's become very valuable in helping instruct because no part of the game is more mental right than putting and what it can do to your brain when you you start going off a little bit so yeah i mean definitely and it's a great feeling to be able to help somebody and when they're chasing excellence and you help them it's it's pretty impressive because you were getting like just from observing you were getting excited out there i could see how much you like enjoyed just just you know doing a quick lesson this afternoon well listen i i mean i i'm still pretty new to this but i also know that i better be confident when i'm out there Mm -hmm. i can't just sound like oh yeah looks good yeah (laughs) you know just kind of you know we, we always busted rick smith's balls you know he was a great instructor taught um Phil for a while and before that Rocco and, and Lee Jansen and Billy Andrade and he would always you know be out there and a guy would hit a bad shot and then he hit another one and uh, he goes oh that's better and I'm like well yeah of course it was better he hit a second <laughs> ball would that feel better yeah it looked better you know, so, <laughs> so I, I don't want to be that um, and and you've got to you know there's there's a real psychology to the instruction game it's um it's so individually based. It seems like no lesson is ever the same, but it, a lot of what, you know, maybe the first thing you heard me say is what's your schedule? Mm-hmm. You know, where, what are you going to do? How much, you know, and, and to me, I'm trying to figure out how much technical stuff do you need to talk about versus how much play stuff. And when, you know, I know Rory much better than most of the guys that I'm spending time with. If there were a month off and we really had time to 
dive in and work on something that we thought was important, there's times to do that when there's times not to do it. Yeah, you're not going to go change a bunch of stuff before he leaves for Japan tomorrow. No, because you know what? Too much to think about. He, he you know, he, he's going to watch a rugby game. We talked about that. He's he's a big sports fanatic. He watches UFC. He watches uh, soccer or football for them. Which, and I think that's a great distraction for these guys. But he, he, I think he's really excited about these the skins game in Japan too. He's worked up. He's getting to play with Tiger Woods on a, a probably a, a global stage, isn't it? Yeah, that is exciting. awesome. It's awesome. What is so? All right, let's take a run of the mill professional when it comes to putting, and I, I mean that a bit tongue in cheek, of course. Let's just t- say from a professional standpoint, somebody who's about average at putting. Okay. And each individual is different, so this isn't going to apply to everyone. But is there something you can see that, you know, a typical thing, a general thing that pros, when they are struggling on the greens, that they struggle with? And can you see that on TV? Yes and yes. And with – so that's – I think your question is kind of, is there one thing? What's the one thing? Which is always a hard question to answer because when if I do clinic with amateur golfers, they always want that one tip. Everybody wants a quick tip. Um, I've really never had a a player ever come to me and say, "I'm putting way better in competition all the time. I take a lot longer in competition all the time. I try harder in competition, and I squeeze onto it harder in competition, and I always putt better then." (laughs) It's always the opposite. Yeah. You know, I struggle in competition. I always putt better when I'm playing with my buddies or in the pro-ams when it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Always. Um, I feel like I don't take as much time. I trust my first instincts a lot. And then when I get in tournaments, I, I have a hard time making up my mind. Um, so, you know, if, if you're an instructor, and I don't want to say a typical instructor, but if you're an instructor that's used to having a student come to you and putting everything on video and then breaking down the true mechanics of what's happened in that stroke... That stroke gets affected by a player's thoughts before they go there. And if there's doubt, if there's tentativeness, you know, if there's bad memories, if there's nerves that come kicking in, whatever you're seeing in the stroke, you can't measure those two things. And, and when, when you look at a player's statistics over a course of a year, um, what's never measured is and by the way, the shot link stuff's changing the game for sure. how players practice, what part of the game they have to practice. But, you know, I tell all my students, I hate to say students because I feel like I'm not, I'm not <laughs> like a teacher instructor really, but it's, um, I, I feel like I'm more of a friend. I, I don't know. Sure. But it's, is there such a status strokes gained attitude? And you know, what? that's an yeah. immeasurable stat. And, Almost all players put their par putts better than they put their birdie putts. That's a that's yeah. a fact. Yeah, it's a fact. But what? Why? Mental. I mean, it's mental. mental it, yeah. it, it, it so it can't be technical, can it? No. You know, you, if you, if you have ten footers for par versus birdie, and you make, you know, say you make forty five percent of those things if they're for uh, par and thirty percent if they're for birdie, how can that be technique? Right. Yeah, that's a Mark Brody like measured stat. Yeah, and it's fascinating yeah. to me how you think about it, and that's why you know one of the things we talked about today with Rory was like, um, can you be in that mindset when I, I love when a player starts telling me what they're going to do, they're verbalizing what they're doing, they're verbalizing their imagery really, and then they they're showing off. Uh, watch this, and those percentage of putts go up. 
their routine is flawless and, and there is flow. And, and you can see that in the best athletes. And, uh, you know, one of the first times I met Bob Rotella, we were watching basketball and he was a basketball coach and he played basketball. But we, he said, look, let's watch these players at the free throw line. But he says, I want you to put a thumb over the basket. And when you watch the routine, tell me whether the ball is going to go in or not. See if you can see that flow. And I mean, today I had that that video of Rory hitting a chip shot while he was doing a clinic to the amateur golfers that uh, Harry, his caddy, had sent to me. And I mean, Rory, this is you at your best when you're subconscious and letting it go. And that, I think that resonates with a player when they're in the right state of mind. It's just repeating what you keep wanting to see and do. Right, but you can't fake like going into your subconscious, right? Like if you want something hard enough, you can't be like, oh, well, I'm just going to treat this just like a shot on the practice screen. I'd imagine. I mean, is that fair to say? No, it's pretty fair to say. And, and you have to, that's why it's it's much more fun for me, uh, and no offense to average golfers, to, to help somebody that wants to be the greatest player in the world because they do know the difference. But, right. but you know, I when I gave Rory that 60-degree wedge and just said hit a few shots, uh Putts with, putts, with you know, from yeah. seven, eight feet, whatever it was. Um, it was just interesting. You know, I, I look at a few things like we talked about. Does he sole the club on the ground before he takes it back? And then, you know, you have to have uh, to, to hit the, the blade of the putter. The leading edge has to hit the middle of the ball. That's to have your best chance at it. How do you do it? Do you do it throughout the putt? And, and that happens on, with a regular uh, putter. You know, your putter's sold on the ground. And then somewhere in the transition and the follow through before impact, that putter's got to be off the ground a certain amount to yeah. hit the middle of the ball in the middle of the face. And he does it f- without thinking with the right. sandwich. It was flawless. So yeah. it is. And he made a lot of them, didn't right. he? And then if he can feel how that feels and understand that that's having, you know, a subconscious mind or an athletic mind, an instinctual mind. Then he can bring that to the course. But if you have no idea what it's supposed to feel like on the golf course or you're struggling and somebody says, well, just don't think about it, that doesn't work. No. I'm, I, uh, we've been very putting focused and I'm not done with putting questions. But you mentioned Rotella a couple of times and I want to, I, I hope this translates to people. But in, in high school, we had this audio book. I have no idea where we got it or it was kind of like a podcast before there were podcasts. But okay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's, it's from Bob Rotella. Golf is a game of confidence. Oh, sure. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you were a co-author of that. or It's uh, you know, basically I, about your final round at Riviera in 95 at the PGA Championship. So that's the second chapter of the book, which is sitting right there. I, okay. so I get to see it every day. Um, <laughs> and it was really, Bob Cullen was his um, ghostwriter. And Cullen sat down with me and basically asked me about the whole week at Riviera, the PGA championship. And that was the final event before the Ryder cup in 1995, which was at Oak Hill in Rochester. And I was a player that had started to play better a few years before won a few tournaments. And as a, a, a potential first time Ryder cupper, I knew that I would never get selected unless I made the team. I wasn't going to be a captain's pick, especially in that era. Yeah. Never happened. And, I had played a few pretty good rounds there and hadn't had anything exciting happen. And the last day I was in, I think I was in 19th or 20th place going into the final round, five or six shots behind Elkington, Ells, Montgomery. And 
had one of those dream rounds and a, a particularly dream in nine. And, you know, I, I had a, a course that I loved. It was an easy course to see a shape or see a shot Riviera in ideal conditions. Uh, weather-wise, there wasn't much rough there. Uh, hot, which we had always played the LA Open in cold weather there in February. And then we had horrific greens maybe the worst greens that ever played in competition because the the golf course had just been renovated by uh bill core and ben crenshaw and the, whatever bermuda grass or poana grass that they used didn't take and they were awful <laughs> and that would have been a compliment but i you know like happens in a lot of great rounds i had a the first hole was a, a short par five and i had a good drive and a beautiful five iron and had a 20 footer for an eagle and it went in and all the bumps went the right way and it just kind of set a tone for a, a round that turned out to be the best round of my career and the most important round. But, uh, and I shot 28 the front nine in a, in a major. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think about records, can records be broken? I tied a record by that only one other player had done before, and that was in the 1920s. And to shoot 27 in a major, I mean, you rarely hear right. 27 shot anywhere. I don't know if that's going to happen. Does so, that have to be a par 34? And yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. With no par five. So yeah, yeah it's, it could be around for a while. I yeah. mean, so your name's on a list, right? Yeah. It's at least a short list. But um, it was one of the greatest days. And, and I've, I've had, I read that book because it's me, you know, yeah. just because I like it. But I've also, and it feels funny to be able to say, if I said to Brandon Grace, uh, who lives here, you know, you should, read this chapter. I don't want to be promoting me, but right. I, I, I mean, the the fact, because I was very honest and truthful about my thoughts wavered throughout that round. You know, I had thoughts get in my way that I had to overcome. And some that, you know, I three-putted a green that day, uh, missed a couple putts that I wished I'd made and, and my reaction and everything. I mean, it's on paper now. And I think it was a really good lesson and a lot of people enjoyed it. I don't know if you... Well, I just remember listening to that in high school and and... Like maybe the first time I listened to it, I went out and played like the best round I'd ever had right after that. And I've tr- always tried to channel the confidence from that because the line that always stuck with me, and maybe it maybe didn't stick with me that great because I'm not sure I remember it, but I think it was confidence is playing with your eyes. Does that yeah. sound right? Yeah. I mean, what does that mean? Well, we, we saw that today with Rory, wasn't it? It's like he, what he sees, and remember when he was behind the ball today uh, on that let's call it a 20 footer. And he, he said, I'm going to play it six inches out there. And he, he, he used the, the shaft is almost like a plumb bob to, like Justin Rose does. What do we know if that was six inches or not? What he sees is very different. It doesn't matter to me. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, the last thing I would do is get a ruler and say, is this what you see six inches to me? Cause it yes. doesn't matter what I see mm-hmm. or ma- it matters what he says. And that's what he's, he's using his eyes and how he makes it. And, and when we were watching him, and I would have said that was a clinic today, watching putts go in on the high side, putts go in straight ahead. And, you know, sometimes when when I saw his ball start, I'm like, oh, that's going to be too low because he started it straighter. And then it would go right in because right he carried speed, the yeah. speed with it. You know, and that's the playfulness, that's the athleticness of it. And um, I actually tried to reach out to Steve Kerr about a week or two ago because I read an article about Steph Curry and how he – when he goes out to go through the uh, warm-ups, he always shoots at different arcs, you know, because he, he never knows when a hand's going to get in his face and he's in the middle of his motion and, you know, he might have somebody coming 
to him where he has to get rid of it quicker or get rid of it higher. So he's always practiced in a different arc. And I wanted to ask Kerr, who's one of the greatest free throw shooters in the world, did you ever try and shoot free throws at different arcs? Here's a shot that's the same, right? Mm -hmm. Because I've been preaching to to my guys, look, can you hit this putt at different speeds? Can you hit a straight putt very soft and die it in? Or can you smash it in the back? And what feels better to you? Mm-hmm. And not that I want one to feel better to you or not. I just want you to know certain days it might be the firm one, certain days it might be the soft one. So what you made the Ryder Cup team through that through that final round at Riviera. What was your first Ryder Cup experience like? Well, it, you get I get questions. What was the most nervous you've ever been in your life? Yeah. And, and people will always say it must have been, you know, your first time, your tee shot at the Masters or on the first tee at the Ryder Cup, or you know, a putt to win your first tournament or a major championship, which I never did. But I can tell you at the Ryder Cup in 95, we, we played a practice round on Monday when the gates were closed, so there were no people, no spectators. And then Tuesday, we went out, and I got a pairing with Lauren Roberts, Peter Jacobson, and Corey Pavin. And Peter and I were a potential four-ball uh, team. Uh, Lanny, Lanny wanted us to be the first ones out. And that morning, that particular morning in Oak, in Rochester, was later September, so it was cool. It wasn't cold, but I would say it was 50s. And Peter and I were going to go out there and play. And we had to walk from the practice tee to the uh, to the first tee, which was a hundred yards, maybe longer. Uh, there was a gauntlet there, and there were people waving flags, screaming USA. And, you know, we had gone from a dead silent course the day before to all of a sudden thousands and mm-hmm. thousands of people. Practice rounds are rowdy. At the oh, Ryder my Cup. <laughs> gosh. It was incredible. And, and none of us had seen this before. I don't think we were prepared for that. And we're walking up there. We're all wearing our red, white, and blue. And the flags are going. And people are high-fiving. And we're walking up there. It was fun. And we walk up onto the tee, you know, just kind of the backside of the first tee there. And standing on the first tee, Byron Nelson and George Herbert Walker Bush waving American flags. And Just like I, a normal tournament, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. That's Byron <laughs> Nelson. And and he said, come on, Brad. And I'm like, he knows my name. <laughs> Byron Nelson knows who I'm I am. I'm like, oh, my God. So, and then it was like uncanny. Uh, it was the voice of God said, and on the tee, first to play from the United States of America, which I had never had before. Right. Maybe I had it at a Walker Cup. Brad Faxon. Now, I didn't know I was going to be the first one to hit. And I I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do it. And this was 1992, so I had, I was 95. So I was one of the last guys to switch from wood to metal. Okay. And the metal wood, I was probably using either a tailor-made or a founder's club. I don't know if you're old enough to remember <laughs> no. founder's club. But I took that thing out there, and it looked smaller than the golf ball when I was over it. And... The first hole at Oak Hill is a, a long dogleg left par four with out of bounds to the right. It was blowing left to right. It was cold. I was nervous. And what makes it worse is we had this little uh, phrase called MITE, M-I-T-E. And that meant man in the envelope. And what that meant was we all knew that if on Sunday in the singles match, one player was hurt on the other team, Lanny was going to have to put a man in the envelope, okay. a name in the envelope. Right. So okay. if somebody hit a bad shot that week, we all said might. So you were going to be the guy that didn't play. Right. The, so the might, yeah. Yeah, and, and I thought any time Lanny was around and I hit a bad shot, I was thinking might. You know, it was just it was the worst thing. Because that had happened to, at the War by the Shore 
uh, Steve Pate got in an accident, Injured, yeah. right, in the, yeah. in the limo, and I was, it's good of you, you weren't even born then. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was born in 86, okay. come on. Okay, so um, we go out, I go, I go to hit it, and I got it airborne, I hit a, a draw, and it ended up just in the left rough, and for me, it was the best shot of my life, right, <laughs> uh, without a doubt, and, and everybody hits, and we go out there laughing, and I think either Lauren or Corey was the only guy to hit the fairway. And then we get out there and magically all four balls were within five, 10 yards of each other. Cause Lanny had thrown them all out in the middle of the fairway. He was out in the, in the landing area and he, he comes over like Lanny Ken with that swagger. And he says, ah, oh, you guys won't hit it there in the tournament and I'm or in the competition. I'm like, I might. I don't hit a lot of. Fairway. If I hit it good, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. So now, I had like two ten, two twenty, and it was wet. It's a little downhill lie. There was a creek ten or fifteen yards short of that green, and I had to take out a two iron. And this is back when oh, two yeah. irons. That's didn't a different ha- shot. They didn't have head covers, right? right. They, they weren't fat. Uh, and I'm like, oh, and Lanny's watching. Like I could be kicked off the team right now if this doesn't get over the creek. <laughs> so that first hole was the most uncomfortable I've ever been on a golf course. That's a practice I was, In a practice, I was way more comfortable playing, mm-hmm. way more comfortable. So, I mean, it's ironic that it's a practice round. It's not um, unexpected that it was the Ryder Cup, though, right? And there, that's a cool letter that I got from Byron Nelson. He wrote me a letter one time and. Uh, after my second place finish at the tour championship, he saw an interview. So to have um, a framed letter, handwritten, penned letter on his stationery, and that the great line there at the very end, he says, you are a fine man. Now, who says that? Right. No, nobody phrases anything like that. You can hear the accent, though, when, you, when, are you, a fine man. when you say that. Uh, what a thrill. Yeah, you got a hell of, a hell of an office in here. What a thrill. A lot of, a lot of topics that I plan to get to at some point. Um, so what is... How have you seen the Ryder Cup evolve over time? I feel like I feel like '91 was a, a changing year, uh, just in the in the intensity, I guess, and the the I don't want to say hostility, but it just seemed to get a little bit more hostile. And '99 was a big transition year. You played in two of them in between that. Could you feel tension? Obviously, you didn't have any other examples before that, but did you feel tension starting to rise during that time period? Yeah, and it, it started a few years before the war before the shore when you know when the europeans Village got added one. added to the um to the mix and you know there was such a domination before that when it was just gb and i that with the influx of europeans that all seemed to come over at once whether it was sevy or uh langer um and then you had other great players from gb and i like sandy lyle and ian wisdom and they all seemed to come at once and the European tour was, you know, maybe not in its infancy, but about it. In it. But those players, those great players won a lot more because the, the depth of competition wasn't nearly as strong as it was in the U.S. And I don't think it is um, as strong now. I mean, that might get some arguments from some of the Europeans, but Rory made those comments, didn't he? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, that's a fact. So it is a fact. And, and I think they know it, and I think that's why Rory's wanted to stay over here. Right. European play. players... It's not it's not European players versus American players because like but like the tours are it's not even comparable. Really you at this you point. can't and, yeah. and but I think it helps the European side when players that we haven't heard as much about over here like a Wiesberger or a Matt Wallace can win over there and gain a lot of confidence from winning. Sure, and that helps them in the match play part of it. And it, it 
the anomaly between of, of, among all this is how do they, with so many different cultures, come together as a team seemingly better than the U.S. does? Uh, is it the importance we play on it, uh, put on it more, or is there more of an ego factor on some of the biggest names in American golf where they, they don't care about Ryder Cup because major championships or winning is or money is more important you know it's a combination of all those things right i i would say i had one experience with one of the um pga of america presidents uh who asked me and this was before azinger was selected and and this president roger warren was a fantastic guy we were flying to do a, an event for titleist up to new england where i was from and we were on a private plane at the time, which was fantastic. And I don't know who paid for that, but <laughs> I said yes. And it was just Roger and I. We were talking about Ryder Cup and captain selections and everything like this. And I remember, you know, there were a few choices there. Which was was Azinger the right uh, pick to be the captain? And Roger asked me, "What what are your thoughts?" And I asked him. I said, "Well, can I start off by asking you?" Does it matter if you, if the American side wins or not? And he goes, well, of course it does. And I said, well, then your whole process is wrong. And this is really before they got into um, having some sort of a, what do they call it? Task a, a force, task force or a, or a all pods. Yeah. Uh, so I said, if you were going to care about winning and wanted to win every time and dominate like if you wanted to be the New England Patriots, you'd have Bill Belichick be your coach every year. Right. But this is more about what looks good in a camera every two years so you can promote yourselves. And I'm not blaming you for that, but one of my, my question was honest. Yeah. Do you care if you win? And he looked at me, he was offended by it. And I said, I know that bugs you, but if you were going to do this the right way, if you were a, a company that was going to try and be a, a Fortune 10 company, you wouldn't do it the way you're doing it. Right. And you might not pick the best players in the world to be on your team because they're not team players. Right. And it goes know, down to venues too. I mean, venues, venues that are selected are, for... it goes down to ratings. Right. And I mean, I'm going to get off topic here with this and it's interesting, you know, like Tiger still hasn't said whether he's going to play at the president's cup this year. Right. And he made a comment. Well, I'm going to ask my teammates now. What team? <laughs> no, Tiger. We don't want you, we, man. <laughs> we don't want you to play. Do you think Justin Thomas? Go, yeah, Tiger. Tiger, why don't you sit just... this one out, man? We Who's got it? this. And and by the way, <laughs> it it might be something, you know, where NBC says to Jay Monahan says, uh, our ratings will be a lot better if Tiger Woods plays. Right, and they will be. Right. Yeah, the, I think. That... I think the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup are two different spectacles. I think, like, obviously Tiger should play in the President's Cup. Why not? Right. I'd love to see him play. Yeah, and maybe it's just I'm a couldn't be more of a diehard U.S. Ryder Cup fan. But like, if the U.S. loses the President's Cup, I won't. I won't bat an eye. I think it. I think it'll bother me how much people will panic about it. Probably, but like, I'd rather see the spectacle. I want to see Tiger at Royal Melbourne. That's going to be sure. awesome. Now, the question, the better question, and this is one I had on my list. Is you know putting on the prediction cut the cap for next year? Do you think he's on? If you were to guess right now, if you were to bet, do you think he's on the Ryder Cup team next year at, at uh, Whistling Straits? I had a four-hour drive to think about this today. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because he he was on the ballot for Player of the Year, by the way, because he won the Masters. He to me, if he wants to play on that Ryder Cup, I think he knows he has to do better than he did 
towards the end of the year. He can't just mail it in. And France. I mean, he was absent. Absent. <laughs> and and I, I think that that win for him to, to go, was it nine years, 11 years between majors? 11 years. 11 yeah. years. He had his kids there. They hadn't seen that. Uh, everything that he did off the course it all went away and it just made everything his life. I think he's more satisfied with that major win than anything else. I don't think, I don't think his drive is there like it was now when it gets to Augusta, that's a different story. I mean, that, that turns on everybody's Mm -hmm. uh, engine a little bit faster and and harder than any other event. Uh, So he, he's going to have to finish the season next year to make the Ryder cup team. And, And Stricker as friendly as they are, He's 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 not going to pick Tiger just because he's buddy and just because he won a Masters a year and a half ago. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to Tiger answering. You know, the question the question is going to be answered one of two ways. It's are you okay with ninety nine being the only team that you want on and basically admitting, you know what, maybe I was part of the problem in some way. I'm tough to pair with. I haven't played my best. Too much attention around me. Too much pressure on my teammate. Maybe it's best I sit this out. If, if he's able to have that attitude, and I don't know if he is, and I don't know if that's the right attitude necessarily. Maybe he's still, I mean, for all he's been through and the fact that he won the Masters, maybe he has one great Ryder Cup appearance in him at age 44. Yeah, no, and I think and maybe. I, I have no doubt in my mind that if Tiger commits himself to an entire year like he did for last year at the start of the year, he, he will be on that Ryder Cup team and that his teammates will want him on that team. He was on the team, his first Ryder Cup was my. Right, in 97. Ryder Cup in 97, and we were um, the only two players there without a significant other. So we sat next to each other on the Concorde when we flew the Concorde <laughs> to Spain. Um, so, And he was a great teammate. As a matter of fact, in the singles matches, I was playing Langer, uh, and we were the deciding match. Unfortunately, it went the wrong way. But Tiger came and watched my match, and I'm like, Tiger Woods is watching me play. I mean, this was this is when he was 21. But that's what a teammate does, right? right. He comes out and he, he's pulling for you. Um, and I, I think that he probably got hurt a little bit, as did Duvall. Um, you know, Mark O'Meara was his mentor, living together at Isleworth, and they played a lot of practice rounds together. And I think Mark would, would have been a player that raised early on before anybody did and, and verbalized it and got it in the press, which I thought was almost an unmentionable that, hey, look, we're getting taken advantage of. Uh, and I think he had a, a legitimate gripe that the PGA of America was uh, promoting us, making us go through all kinds of um, jump through hoops, pomp and, they, and circumstance, yeah. right, while you're at the event that was promoting them and for them for their gain, you know, that's a, a huge windfall every four years over here. And O'Meara said something that I don't think anybody wanted to ever say because you couldn't win that battle. Right. There's no fan that's going to ever go, Mark, we feel bad for you. You're not right. making any money this week. Uh, but he he, he kind of got a few of those players under his wing. And maybe that was, you know, so Tiger might not have been a social guy and didn't want to go to a black tie dinner the night before the first round. Nobody wants to do that, but I think there are a bunch of players too that have now grown up seeing what Ryder Cup is and say, I'd swim, swim across the ocean to go play. Well, the way I remember the pay to play stuff, it, it maybe it, it, at least the way it ended up was different than how it was presented in that the money eventually players, I think got 
something. Every player got like $200,000 that goes to a charity. Of their choice. Of their choice. Yeah, no, and that's significant. And that was, and maybe it's a bit of revisionist history, but what I feel like I've heard David Duvall speak on it too, and that like all, you know, they looked around and said, this is an insanely big corporate outing. There's a ton of money being generated. We don't necessarily want the cash for ourselves, but like you, you all guys, and I want to talk to you some about your charitable endeavors. Like there's something that comes with making a significant amount of money, the things that you guys are able to do with it, right? It doesn't all go to yourselves. And there's, you know, there's things you want to support and things you want to put your power behind. And it, there was, like you said, there's no way to win that. There wasn't a way to explain, like, I want money for charity for doing this. But I, I don't know. It was just a weird situation that, you know, the guys had to take that on. And it has been addressed since then and been quiet ever since then. But uh, it wasn't, it, it was a worthy cause in some way, I do think. I'm taking the side of the millionaire pros, I know, but it, it, it makes sense. Yeah, so, you know, Mark O'Meara was a pioneer maybe in something that I wouldn't want to have been remembered as, but he, he moved the needle in, in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And it, maybe it cost him a captaincy too because O'Meara could have been a, a worthy captain. And Crenshaw did not support the players in this regard either. He said it makes me sick, it makes me sick that they're, re- they're requesting this. Correct. Yeah, so there were a few players like Duvall that uh, won a major, that won a significant amount of events that could have been a captain that you know, the PGA turned that page quickly. Mm-hmm. And the, I, I don't think there was a formula that could have been correct to say this is the right of money to get, amount of money to give every player because if you had Tiger Woods, what does he command for a, an appearance versus right. a first-time rookie player? Pick one. And, and seven it, days of someone's so, time yeah, is so valuable. You, there, there was no way you could say, okay, let's give everybody $500,000 and you know that would make one person ecstatic and Tiger would go, that's what I get a day or whatever. Right. You know, so, yeah, and, and being able to say, I'm going to take that, Two fifty or three hundred thousand dollars, and say that's going to go to the Tiger Woods Foundation or to the Android Facts and whatever it was. That's I think that gives the player some satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Well, t- let's perfect transition there. Talk to me about the Android Facts and how you guys came up with that. Uh, that and and I'm assuming is <laughs> Billy Android, of course, is your partner with that. And when did that start? And what is it? Yeah, so Billy, another Rhode Islander, is he's three years younger than I am. So he he played at a different course than I did growing up. He went to uh, a different high school. So we we knew each other as as teenagers but not well we played in a few state junior events together uh i was at Furman for one year when he was at wake forest so we started to get to know each other but billy always got uh he was always a better junior player quicker than i was he was a better college player quicker than i was and he he, frankly he won a pga tour event before i did being three years younger um and when we were living in rhode island we we were lucky enough to get to know a lot of New England athletes, and you know, obviously a, a great sports town, Boston, with, with all the different major sports. And having played the tour for a few years and gotten to know some different celebrities, we we were um, asked to do an outing for one of the biggest um, organizations in Rhode Island called the Meeting Street Center, and it was a a, a school for physically challenged, mentally challenged kids. It's, it's a one-of-a-kind school, and Billy's brother just happened to go there. And we did this outing uh, for Meeting Street, and we did it for a couple of years. We raised some good money for the school, and then Billy and I started talking with our wives, saying, hey, listen, we could do a lot more if we did this ourselves and got some celebrities to come along. 
And so we started this and the money went to Meeting Street School, like a lot of money back in the early 90s where we were raising a few hundred thousand dollars, which was unheard of. And then we went to Meeting Street and said, look, we're going to do this on our own and we're going to give you 50% of the proceeds. The other 50% we're going to give to other charities. And they said, no. I said, you're going to say no to this money? And then the next year we raised 700000 And then it kept snowballing. And we had celebrities like, there's Glenn Fry right there, uh, caddy for being the Masters one year uh, in the Par 3 tournament. We had Bill Murray, Joe Pesci. Billy was friendly with Joe. We had so many of the Bruins players, Bobby Orr, Cam Neely, Don Sweeney, uh, Sandy Koufax, who never played in Pro-Ams. He played in our event. We had Danny Sullivan, a race car driver, uh, Andre Tippett, uh, Steve Grogan from the Patriots. I mean, the list goes on and on. I, I, I'll leave out a ton of them. But we had so many. John O'Hurley, the actor that plays in a lot of golf events. We had dozens and dozens of, of great Bonnie Blair. We had, I mean... <laughs> Dan Jansen. We had so many of the coolest athletes, and they would come together and uh, see themselves. And when Koufax was there, we had pitchers like Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit and Tom Glavin sitting at the same table. And Chris Berman was there, and he's looking at this table going, that's the greatest amount of wins in the history of the game. And Tom Glavin came away uh, because Koufax taught him how to pitch inside to a right-hander at Fenway Park, and he had one of the best years of his career because of a conversation he had at the Android Faxon. Now, no way. How really? cool is that? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, that was a really successful. We were probably the first tour players to have... Uh, we won national awards. Charles Bartlett, uh, Bing Crosby. We won uh, Jim Murray. I mean, we these things that we did together were sensational and rewarding. Uh, and we've given over eight or $9 million away now to, to over a hundred different children's charities in the state of Rhode Island. The PGA tour website, they've got you for 19 million. Does that well, sound right? no, see the, okay. the confusion is, is because we've been doing the CVS charity classic gotcha. started in 1999 after we had been doing the Andrew and Faxon for a while. So we got mixed up with those two events. And the CVS event that we're still doing, we're going into our uh, 22nd year, 99, 21st year. We, 22nd year. We, we, um, we were getting money from that event. When, and then we started doing the Andrew and Faxon every other year because it was hard to do both. But then the CVS thing became a monster event. You know, we had it on TV early on. Uh, it started giving away millions of dollars. We had Arnold and Jack and Gary uh, come to our event the first few years. It was surreal that yeah. we did it. And, and that was to be able to have CVS, which is one of the top 10 companies in the world in Rhode Island, in one of the smallest states, but having the smallest state have some professional golfers that have had some success uh, and a great course, this Rhode Island Country Club on the water. I mean, all the players loved coming there. Uh, we had Hall of Famers. Nick Price loved the place. Calcava- I mean, yeah. You can't list them all, Trevino. We had them all. Well, bake, one of the questions Bacon had me to ask you, I don't know what the question is, but something to how you are connected with everyone and all the athletes <laughs> and all the celebrities. No. But, well, the main question I have related to that is, you're an extra in Kingpin. How did that happen? Well, the Farrelly's. I, I mean, <laughs> the Farrelly brothers are from Boston area, uh, Bobby and Peter, and they were two of the celebrities that played in our event. Now, when they first started doing their early movies, 
and we got them to play, some of the people on our board were like, the Fairley Brothers aren't celebrities. And then we're like, then their movies got really big. Something about Mary came out and, you know, a lot of the Boston athletes were in little roles that they had each year. And Billy and I got to be in the the Something About Mary with, uh, Bill, with Bill Murray, which was tremendous. But they in our auction, which Kingpin, we had Kingpin, we had we had a legendary auction in this event, and and Sean McDonough, one of the great announcers of the world, he he helped host our auction. He he is the one of the funniest human beings when he wants to be that I've <laughs> ever seen. But the Fairley Brothers auctioned off roles in their movies to really? people in our crowd, and one of the uh, the amateur players, a guy named Malcolm Chase, who was he gave more money to us than anybody alive. He and his wife were so great to us and and he he was the largest single shareholder at the time of Berkshire Hathaway and had had <laughs> been very successful as you can imagine um but his his wife Liz still lives down here at Lost Street. we still see her and she's been such a, a a great you know pillar of strength for us when we had gotten into trouble or had needed advice but he bought the a role for a hundred thousand dollars, a speaking role in the movie. So you get to sit at a bar, have a drink with, I can't remember the exact scene now, but, uh, and to see those numbers, you know, when you're in Rhode Island and people are bidding for, uh, I think the greatest item we ever had, we had a, 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 a rack made, uh, by a, a well-known architect, David Andriozzi took this Brazilian, um, walnut frame. And we had a, a spot on this rack for, the living masters champions and we got all we got titleist golf balls with the masters logo we got the addresses of all the living champions we sent it to them with sharpies telling them what we're doing how we're going to auction off please do this for us and we had henry picard we had ben hogan we had gene saracen on uh on these balls so we did this well, most of them were still alive, and some of them wouldn't sign golf balls. We we asked Gary and Jack, I'm sorry, not Gary, Jack, Jack and Tom Watson at the memorial time. We were sitting down at this table with them, and, and we asked them for autographs, and they didn't want to do it. We asked Tiger. He didn't want to do it. And we started to explain to them what we were doing, and they all ended up doing it. And uh, we had Mario Lemieux there, you know, one of the greatest hockey players that mm-hmm. ever lived, and he wanted this so badly. I mean, it was a piece of art. This thing belonged on a wall somewhere. And then we had a big uh, private equity guy from Boston going against him, and it, it sold for $50,000 back in, this would have been 1996. And this guy had all kinds of art on his walls at his nice house, and he said, I have people come into my house all the time, and they only look at this golf ball wreck. I right. have, you know... Uh, Renoirs and Monets and you can name it. <laughs> there, those, those aren't the they, conversation no, pieces like, the, like right these are. What you've got around your office too. Um, this isn't maybe the best transition, but I, we talked a lot about your game and your putting, and I felt like you were always really self-deprecating about your ball striking. So I, I want to, <laughs> which I, I'm trying to keep that as a as a golf fan. I was always trying to keep that relative right because obviously you were a professional golfer you still are a professional golfer and you have been for such a long time you spent I mean you have I think 708 career starts how do you make 708 career starts on the PGA Tour if you're not good a good ball striker I know I I was streaky Um, well I'm trying to understand what that means is kind of where I'm getting at on that with that well I think what it means more than anything is you had 
some sort of grit, you know, to have success out here to win a tournament's hard. Um, I, I think you could pick a lot of different things that you might be proud about. Winning a tournament is what everybody's trying to do. But I won my first tournament in 1986 and my last one in 2005 uh, on the PGA Tour. And then, so, I mean, to play well for a long period of time, I went a pretty long streak from 1984 when I got my card to 2006 before I ever lost my card. Right. Uh, That's insane. Yeah, so. It really, like, that's one thing that I want to, every chance I get to hammer home, the fact that people are able to keep their cards for 10, 20 years, like what Pat Perez is doing is so underrated. 19 straight years of the card. Like, yeah. And nobody notices it, but like the idea that you are one of the top 125 in the world every single year, is it's unfathomable. Because that means you've gone without injury, uh, yeah. without uh, some kind of a, a slump. drama, a slump. Uh, and there's a lot of personal stuff in your lives that can happen, you know, whether it's having a kid, uh, problems with children or illnesses or yeah. I mean, whatever or losing interest or you know some people it's I know early on when the the, the World Series at Akron when, when players like Fulton Allen or Dennis Watson when they won a 10 year exemption it gave them time to change or relax or not keep the foot on the gas and you never heard from them after that and so so sometimes those things can hurt you um, they don't give out 10-year exemptions anymore. No, and, and I was on the board when we didn't, and I'm like, yep. this is a good reason not to have a 10-year exemption. Yep. We, we showed a few guys that had you know, basically lost their cards because, hey, I can experiment now, or I can relax right. now because I've got money and exemptions forever. But going back to that, I never hit a lot of fairways in my life. And actually, I've showed these stats to McElroy, and he laughs. You know, and he, <laughs> but by the way, I think he's impressed too because you know, you see somebody that, hits the ball well a lot and has less success, that's a hard way to play the game too, right. isn't it? You know, uh, and you can frustrate players by, you know, hitting it left, hitting it right, chipping it on, making the putt all day long. But would you, I mean, your self-deprecation with your ball striking, is that was that a real thing when you were playing? Like, were you walking to the first tee thinking, ah, oh, just get me on the green? Or were you going to the first, like, were you confident in your game tee to green? When I played my best, I was, and, and, and I had stretches. There were always like three or four year stretches where I was like, I'm pretty confident. And, and I could pull those off for a while where I felt like I wasn't questioning what I was doing with my swing. Uh, I, I was doing kind of what I teach now is being more athletic and being more instinctive and visualizing shots. And I had stretches where I felt like you can't hit it better than I'm hitting. Yeah, okay. Know? Maybe that's relative. No, no, that makes me feel a lot better about it because I've always just wondered, like, the guy didn't make like every 35-footer he's done No, ever. no. Uh, <laughs> how many, uh, roughly, how many instructors have you worked with over, over your career? Okay, so you got to <laughs> qualify that. To paid instructors? Or, or <laughs> I, I, I did a talk last year uh, at the PGA show, I think, and I had a, a list of all the instructors that I remember. That's yeah. another part too. I remember <laughs> that I paid uh, and I had spent time with. And I, I think I did this first for Greg Rose at the TPI and, and he laughed so hard. And I was, I spoke this year and when I put that list up, there were over 80 um, and it's probably over 90 now. And, and I said, listen, if your name's not on there, I apologize. <laughs> and if your name's 
on there and I haven't paid you, you're not getting paid now <laughs> because the statute of limits, Less uh, limitations, limitations is over. Uh, so, and, and I think everybody got a kick out of it. Um, but I did take a lot of lessons. And, you know, if you looked at my books, there's a lot of instruction books up here too. Uh, but I'm just, I, I love the game. I love. I can tell how much you love golf. Yeah. That's, that's like I'm, real. It's, I'm a golfer. For somebody that's done it for a long time, that's not a guarantee, you know? I mean, at a certain, how old are you now? Um, 58. 58. Like at a certain age, like you've been in golf for so long, it's it would be easy to be sick of it, I think. But uh, the enthusiasm, and you still have the enthusiasm when you're broadcasting and uh, just seeing you out there today, you picked up a club and were hitting balls immediately. Like you still, you still kind of have well, that <laughs> Rory had that, uh, that plane trainer. I don't yeah, know what, yeah. what it's called. Um, but it was interesting. I want to see what that feels like and right. hit a shot. And I had just walked off a plane. So how, why did my balls go so much lower and shorter than Rory's? Oh, man. I, I was like watching him hit these balls. <laughs> and I'm awesome. like, it, it, I, I'm not even seeing the swing speed. I'm watching the club and I'm like, I can follow it. How is it launch? I don't know how it, how it all works. It's but, awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. And I know now what, what Butch Harmon must have first felt like when he first saw Tiger hit balls back in 96 or 7 yeah. when they first started getting together. And to be around Rory for this long, a year and a half, and haven't been seeing him on the practice. I've spent a lot of time just standing there behind him when, when he's with Michael, just kind of watching. And it's the sound, the compression, yeah. the size. Well, what is your first memory of Tiger? I mean, as far as like seeing his game, playing with them, or just walking by him on the range, seeing him hit it, was it... I mean, one, you were a veteran by the time he got out there. Were you a little aggravated with how much hype there was around him coming into it? Did you know he was going to be that good? That was like eight questions at once, but yeah. I'm excited to talk Tiger. So you don't know the first time I met Tiger. You haven't heard this. Or somebody asked you to ask me this. I don't think I know, no. Well, we I was playing a practice round at the Honda Classic in, at Weston, and I started on the back nine, and I was I, I don't know why I can't remember who the other player that I was with was, but we, we made the turn and there was a a bag on the first tee with stand, like a carry bag. And there was one person there with a caddy who we didn't know who it was and it was Tiger Woods and he was 16 years old. So how old am I? I'm 58, Tiger's 40. It's been 90, 93. So he's 16 years younger. 92 or 93. Yeah. Yeah, and I was a good player then. Right? Yeah. I mean, I was winning tournaments, so I was like starting to be. Mm -hmm. I was top ten money list guy probably in in those in '92. I was for sure. But um, so Tiger would have known who I was because he was a student of the game like Rory is, and he asked us if he could join us. And I don't know if Tiger. I didn't ask him if he. If it was just coincidence that he wanted to play with me that back, well, our back nine, mm -hmm. his first nine. Or if he just showed up at that time when we were there, but he knew I was a good chipper putter, and the three he said, "Can I join you?" We're like, "Sure." So I'm looking at this kid, going, "Who's this kid?" He hits a drive, we hit a drive, and I didn't really look at his drive and think, "Wow, he really smoked that." Right. And the guy I was playing with, I said, "Dudley Hart." I, I I'm I'm still not sure. Uh, we go walking out there. And 708 tournaments. We can forgive you for missing, yeah. for getting your practice. So, so there's there's a, a a ball here and a ball there, and then there's one like 20 or 30 yards out there, and I just go straight to the farthest one out there, and then I walk 30 yards back to mine, <laughs> and I go, "This son of a bitch." He, it was Tiger, and he yeah. was 16. He weighed 110, and I'm like, "That was an embarrassing <laughs> moment." And he walks up there, and I'm sure he's like, 
Yeah, I got him. He was waiting for yeah, you to walk up. Yeah, he was definitely there. a sprinkler head, I'm saying. And, that, <laughs> and he, you know, he, he ended up being so nice and inquisitive and asking questions and talking about putting. And we chipped and we, you know, hit all kinds of little, little trick shots. And, you know, Tiger did that throughout his career. Early on, you know, he played with Greg Norman early on, wanted to be a great driver of the ball. He knew I was a good putter. We we talked about putting. We played a lot of practice. Around. We chipped on uh, a, a lot of the practice area greens uh, when he first got out on the tour. So that was my first experience with Tiger. And I was really impressed at, at this age that he could play. And I know he played at, at Riviera as a young kid growing up out there in the LA Open. But when he first got out on the tour, which would have been 96 when he got out of school, he had played in a couple of masters and amateur, hadn't had any success. And I was like, I wasn't thinking that he was going to do what he did. And then he beat Love in the playoff there in, in Vegas. And, you know, we were still playing quite a bit. He ended up winning twice and then getting his card, winning the masters with ease. And we, you know, he, he kept saying stuff like, I'm winning without my A game. And I finally pulled him aside with Davis Love. We were at the Fort at Colonial, and we were in the what was then the fitness trailer sponsored by Sentinella Hospital. Uh, and we, we said, Tiger, you know, you, you've made these comments that are a little bit like Kepka's making today. Do you care if you have friends, really? Because, you know, you're, you're, you're winning a Masters by a record number of shots and telling people you don't have your A game. You're not gonna. Right. People aren't gonna people like aren't that. People aren't gonna appreciate that. And I, I think it was a good conversation. I, I thought um, he, he just he, he was so competitive. He just wanted to beat everybody so badly. He wasn't really worrying about what he was saying or what people were thinking. But I think it it was good for him to hear that from two respected guys. I mean, Davis is as respected a golfer as I've ever played the game, um, and I used to be. But <laughs> so. That was, you know, those two events were the first Tiger memories. Right. Well, what, uh, for you, what, your career coming up when you came out, you know, as a rookie in your first few years, you weren't as successful as you were in the early 90s. What changed in your career? What made you really hit your stride in like the early 90s? Maybe I had the timeline a bit wrong, but around, it seems to be around maybe late 80s, early 90s is when you really kind of turned a page. It was definitely the early 90s. Uh, and I would say that Billy Andrade, who we talked about earlier in the show, Rhode Islander, he won two events back-to-back in the summer of 1991. He won the Kemper Open, and then he won at Westchester. And he was a close friend and a player that I felt like I was as good as or maybe better than. And I had been what I didn't want to be, uh, a journeyman. And you know, I had had moderate success, finished in 70th, 80th, on the money list and when he won the second one in a row I said I gotta get my act together and then I won the Buick Open in a playoff against Chip Beck and he came back he was on his way to the airport he heard I got in a playoff so he and his wife Jody drove back to watch the playoff and we celebrated that night and it was I mean that meant a lot to me um, you know, he had been a close friend for a long time, but seeing Billy win really kind of, I think it sparked me to like, get your head out of your butt and, uh, you know, win a tournament. And I had, I had been consistently working with McLean at the time, got my ball striking a little bit better. And 
I had worked with Rotella early on, so I I think we 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 tried to have this game plan of. You know, you're curious. You're you're up and down a little bit. Let's just try and keep keep the train heading north, and instead of keep trying different things, and and that really helped. And you know, winning what comes first, winning or confidence. You got to have confidence first, or you're going to have a, a hard time being successful. So that kind of snowballed. It, it got me to where I had a really good season in '92 and won twice, lost in two playoffs, uh, and and really felt much more comfortable playing on that stage. One thing that I've, I, I feel like in talking to the few conversations we've had, I, I feel like you've had, uh, you have more appreciation for golf course architecture than a lot of professional golfers do. Is that something you've, you feel like you've always had, or is that something you've developed kind of later in your career in life? Always had. I, I've always had that love for architecture. Growing up in Rhode Island, uh, I, I grew up on a Donald Ross course. Donald Ross actually used to summer in Little Compton, Rhode Island, where he built Saconic Country Club, which was a par 69 course. So, we had some of the best golf courses that were in the country were in Rhode Island. Wanamoise at Country Club, which was another par 69 where the Northeast Amateur was, was a place that I played the, the Northeast Amateur, uh, played a, a lot. And then when you, when you started travel through New England, you had uh, William Flynn, who did the Country Club at Brookline. Uh, I played an unbelievable course on the Cape called Eastward Ho, Herbert Fowler design still one of my favorite courses in the world. So I got to be familiar with all those names. Billy's course, Wanam Autonomy, was a Seth Rayner. Uh, if you if you went and saw other Rhode Island courses, Newport Country Club, where the Senior Open's going to be next year, uh, that's had some Ross, Tillinghast, Flynn, Willie Park, who did Point Judas. So those names were there. I sketched holes as a kid, just loved architecture, uh, read books on it, wanted to go play great courses. I love great logos. Uh, Bacon and I always have, you know. You got a great, you're rocking a great logo right there. Yeah, I asked Bacon today. today. I said, you know, I had this this change of clothes in my car because I was coming from the airport to go meet McElroy right after I got off the plane. And I just put, I knew I had these black shoes, so I wanted black socks and black shorts. And I found this, the Pine Valley shirt here, and I was wondering, I wonder, you know, most people would recognize it like your belt got that wing foot logo. That's one of the best logos too. <laughs> so golfers know that, don't they? You know, if you play with somebody that's a real golfer, Rory knows that. He he sees it. You know, I don't know if all the tour players can recognize it or appreciate it as much. You get the members logo there for Pine Valley there. <laughs> it is. I, it is, is that are there a lot of pros that are members at Pine Valley? Or how did you how did that end up happening for you? Uh, Nick Price was the first paying uh PGA tour player to be a member, and that price happened in 94 i mean i'm sorry 2004 there were a few honorary members on the list and it would have been palmer maybe nicholas maybe crenshaw but they never showed up Mm -hmm. and and so you're an active member i'm an active member i get there a couple times a year it's maybe one of the greatest thrills of my life to be asked to be a member at pine valley because i i still think it's the best course in the world have you been just there we were just talking about it oh sure uh, yeah last month yeah it's did it Oh yeah, we it it, it we we it, we had a disagreement there because the, the the argument that people have is what's the worst hole at Pine Valley because you can't even like, you can't even identify. Yeah, that's right. That. I remember. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, uh, and the ability to bring people there and see their eyes open and 
as good as the golf course is, the experience of Pine Valley never lets you down. It always over delivers. Now, what's what surprised me is like I've heard stories of people that have played Augusta, and it it doesn't. They don't walk away raving about the hang and the experience, right? You feel like you're kind of nervous. You're on eggshells. And the opposite, I felt at Pine Valley, it was like it was the, a place that the members wanted to share with people. Every member was there with three guests, and like the idea was, hey. It, this place is for golfers. Like you got to be a player in some in some regard. Like you, people, you've got to taken golf seriously. And this place is like the hardest golf course in the world. And if you looked at the the amount of members there and what their handicaps are, the average handicap's pretty low. Yeah, that they know. That, hey, this is a severe golf course. If you're not a player that can keep the ball somewhere inside the ropes, you're in trouble at Pine Valley. But you know the the tradition of the green coat in the crest um, and what you, what you are there when you see, and it's like every, if you walk in there as a member or a guest, you, you always introduce yourself to everybody you see, because there's a story for yes. everybody that's there. Uh, it's comfortable. You can play in shorts when you're on the course. Um, you know, the, just a scene in the bar. How great is that? Uh, Sly, the bartender there, they just know what you want. They know who you are. They know who's coming. Uh, it, it's, well, yeah, well, it's the reason why I inquire about that is for people that have played as much golf as you have at a certain point for some people, a lot of people, a lot of pros, I think it can get old. A lot of people don't like playing recreational golf. What is like, how does your enjoyment of the game today differ from your truest competitive days? It, well, I'm definitely, I, I had this conversation with Bacon. I had this conversation with Mark Loomis, my producer, uh, what what's the definition of a golfer? And to me, a golfer is somebody that lives and breathes the game throughout their lives. And they, they're reading instructional books or architectural books or watching the Golf Channel and watching competition. They're on social media looking at what all the... And Rory would be a golfer. Uh, he, Arnold Palmer was a golfer. I would say Kepka and Jack, they were competitors. They played golf. But they wouldn't notice the logo on your belt or my shirt and go, "Oh, you're a member of Pine Valley." They, you know. So I, I think you got You got to be all in. And and Bacon and I went through our entire Fox team: who's a golfer and versus who isn't. And it's you know surprisingly a lot of people like they're not familiar with Joe Buck being the uh, the voice of Fox Golf, even though we've been doing it for five years because you know we only appear once a year on for PJ Tour events and. Joe Buck's like the most avid golfer. He's a member of St. Louis Country Club, a CB McDonald course. He's a member at El Dorado, the Discovery Land Place in Cabo. He's a member at Bel Air. We would get off tournaments where we worked four or five hours and we'd go hit balls at a range, like at a paid range with off mats. He's a golfer, mm-hmm. and we have a blast. Well, yeah, but the Buck thing is, is a separate issue. Like People decided before he even waded into golf that they were going to hate him calling golf, and I've... I've been a, a, a proud supporter of, of Buck in a lot of regards, in a lot of ways. But uh, tell us about the golf course you just bought up in uh, Rhode Island that you're coming back from today. Right. Uh, so this is one of the other great uh, Rhode Island courses Donald Ross designed called Metacomet. Uh, Metacomet Golf Club. We, we changed the name from country to golf because that's what it was originally named back in 1901 when it was founded. So you, uh, it's a course that is a small course, 100 10 acres or so, par 70. My dad's a member there still. He's 81. My uh, father-in-law, Dory's 
dad and mom or have been members there for a long time. Their father was a member before that. So it was kind of the, uh, back then, the Italian-Armenian club, kind of the power lunch place only a couple miles from Providence. Uh, it was maybe a little mafia, a little connected group there, and, <laughs> you know, and, and all the clubs had a certain role. There was the Waspy um, Club Aguam Hunt, which was close by. Ross did that one. And Legemont, which was the Jewish club. There were all these clubs around and and met a comment uh, was just golf and and it was a really a social scene back there and it's follow on hard times in rhode island for a lot of reasons the population hasn't grown there people are getting older that were members it's you know same story for same story there was there's too much golf the church was built for easter sunday wasn't it so uh, how how do we survive that's that's what we're working on now and it's it's challenging and it's especially challenging now without Without a pool, you know, without tennis, because those are the things that golfers like. I don't want to lump you and I in the same category, but we are, we care about the golf courses in sure. any place. But like families don't want to join places that don't have pools, they don't have you know activities for the whole family, really. So it is a factor, and as much as we don't maybe use them as golfers, it is a factor. It's a huge factor, and for a course like this, it's kind of land strap. Uh, we don't have room to do it with eighteen holes. We can't just go. Yep. We're going to build a pool right in the middle of the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to work. Nobody's going to want to go to that. Um, what are some courses that you haven't been to that you're really dying to get to? Well, that's the one thing Bacon and I are talking about because we're going to Band of Dunes this year for the U.S. Amateur. I've never been there. Oh, awesome. So I can knock off a lot of those courses. And, you know, I have a couple of those lists, the top 100 lists. And I, I've played close to 80 of the top 100 Ooh. classic courses, which is, you know, a lot. Just in the U.S. or all over the world? Uh, U.S. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, it depends on the list too. The timing oh, of the list, they they're, they're always all over the place. But I'm, I'm probably, you know, I, I don't know if I've seen more instructors or played more top hundred courses. <laughs> up, but Crenshaw's probably been to more of the best courses than anybody else. But I'd be close to playing more of them. And you know, who's a sleeper uh, architect? Stom is Lee Jansen. He okay. goes, he's go hunting around for some of these courses. Okay. What so? What's out there that you haven't? Other than Bandon? Well, yeah, top? I, I haven't been to Sand Valley. Okay. Um, yeah, to see Sand Valley. I got to Sand Hills this year, which was cool to knock that one off. Um, I haven't been to Nova Scotia to play Cabot. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't played Royal Dornock, and, and that's sad because if that's the home of Ross, right, uh, that would be one that I, I gotta I gotta get to. Um, and uh, and I've played most of the good ones in Australia, most of the good ones in Scotland and Ireland, mm-hmm. but. Not all the I like all the little quirky ones. So there's a lot over there I got to see too. I hope we can keep this one in. Uh, I think this was a story you told one of our guys at the PGA show last year over some drinks, and I'm not sure if uh, if it can make it in. But I need to hear about the time where you hit something like eight porta potties on the front nine while oh. shooting an absurdly low score. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I have been known to have an active, active stomach, particularly in the mornings and particularly in golf uh, comp- competitive days. And this was the Buick Open, that one I told you about where I won when the Androids came back to watch me in the playoff. Uh, I, I always stayed with my buddy there. He and his his wife were, he was a tennis pro at Warwick Hills. And we would stay out on the lake. We'd have beer and pizza almost every night. And I'm driving to the course, not feeling very good. And I don't know if it's because I had... I didn't know at the time maybe that I didn't like gluten or dairy um, and everything in there is not right. working. And I was playing with Andy North and 
um, we, we get up and I'm like, oh my God. So I had filled my stomach with uh, Imodium. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. And, or low modal, I don't know, so anything to keep me from going. But I had the runs as, as bad as anybody <laughs> could ever have. And I would, I, I'm certain that every other tour player would have withdrawn uh, that day, no question. Because uh, I think immediately after hitting my first tee shot, I sprinted to a bathroom, uh, played the next hole, sprinted to a bathroom. And, and I went to the bathroom to the portal at seven times on the front nine and I shot seven under I shot 29 <laughs> on a par 36 every birdie you went and took a yeah, shit <laughs> yeah every every single one and and it wasn't just sitting there for a second right it was coming out uh and they're hot in the summer those places so I I was dying I think I shot 30 29 30 I shot 65 and the funniest thing about it, I ended up getting lucky enough to win the tournament but there was a doctor, friend of Tom Kite's, that uh, was an anesthesiologist, Ernie Katsuyama. He used to come and watch us play all the time. And he told me, he had the nerve to tell me that the reason I won is because I took those drugs because it relaxed me. Uh, and, and I said, well, I'm never going to try and get that bad so I can win. <laughs> There's a book here, Walter Hagen. There's a great story when he won the U.S. Open at Midlothian. Uh, he had tomine poisoning from eating bad lobster. And he used this, I, I, I show this to a lot of um, players that he said, look, I would never want you to have that case of tomine poisoning, but it made you stay in the present pretty good. You know, you hit your shot, didn't care about where it went. You just went and hit and played again. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Great philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to let you go. I think we've only started to scratch the surface. So and my dog's cranky. The, the dog's cranky yeah. and you've got an event to get to. You've had a really busy day. So we really appreciate you letting me uh, let me come down and do this. Awesome. And, uh, I know you've been persistent and I've been, you know, no, I just session, but knew this would be to... excellent. So we'll, I'll do it again. We can do this uh, however often you're available. Thank so, you. Appreciate awesome. it. Appreciate Thanks. Appreciate it, Brad. Thanks. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!